So I went into the literature looking at the stuff. It's like, my God, there's an entire world of research and I'm a doctor and I don't know any of this stuff. Thanks very much for tuning into the Stronger Medicine podcast. My name is Julian Donovan and I am a medical doctor working in the NHS in the UK. Today is episode number three. So aging is something that we don't really tend to give a huge amount of thought and I guess understandably because it can be, well, quite a depressing topic to dwell on for too long. We tend to associate the process of aging as one of a downward trajectory entropy, things getting worse generally, and just a miserable process overall. However, the guest that I have on today has a very different message for us. Dr. Jonathan Sullivan was an emergency care physician for around 25 years, a physiologist, a professor. He completed research on brain injury and repair related to myocardial infarction and stroke. And today, the topic of conversation is why did he leave his career in clinical medicine for, by his own admission, a completely unexpected tangent towards something that he felt had more impact upon the people that he was seeing day in and day out in the emergency room, who at that time, he felt he couldn't help sufficiently. I consider Dr. Sullivan to be at the forefront of bridging this gap between clinical medicine and the types of things that we can do for ourselves, for our own health, which are often more powerful and more potent than medicine itself. He co-authored a book called The Barbell Prescription, which I have to say is one of the most outstanding books I've had the pleasure of reading. It's aimed at clinicians, trainers, and indeed anybody who is in the process of aging, which just so happens to be all of us. And it starts from the foundations of biochemistry, endocrinology, metabolism, basic sciences, and layers upon this the reasons, biologically, psychologically, and even existentially, one might argue, for why we should engage in strength training, and indeed how to go about it. It really holds your hand and leads you through this entire rationale. So if you're a clinician, if you're a trainer, or if you're just a regular human being like myself... I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of this. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Jonathan Sullivan. Thanks so much for taking the time out today. I really appreciate um, giving me the time to to have a chat. You're starting a really cool thing over there. Oh, thanks very much. Hopefully. I don't recall when I first came across you and your work. I'm pretty sure it was Barbell Training is Big Medicine, the article that you released a while ago. I think I stumbled upon that just somehow. That was the a beginning. Of, yeah, it was very much, uh, it, it articulated something about strength training that I'd never really seen before. And it stuck with me for a while. And then obviously your book came out, The Barbell Prescription, and I ordered that immediately. Um, and I've been well, getting, thank you. churning through it. No, it's fantastic. You've, you've had enough praise on it, but I'll just add to that by saying that it is a, a pretty outstanding book and it looks a bit terrifying when you flick to the end and all the the references that you have. So I don't think there's many people who will be contesting the contents anytime soon. (laughs) To begin with, your CV is equally terrifying. You've been in the Marine Corps. You, you know, have a third Dan black belt in Tung Sudo. You are a strength coach, author, professor, PhD, and ER doc. Was it 25 years? Yes, 25 years. And um, as as of uh, about a year ago, uh, you can't call me a professor anymore because I'm I'm no longer uh, working as a scientist and mm-hmm. I'm no longer on faculty. Everything's devoted to the gym and Grace Steel, our channel, and coaching older clients. That's okay. what everything's all about now. Well, so you've gone full time now into into the coaching yeah, side. Yeah, I've, I've retired. Uh, from one career and starting another, but it's kind of, I view it as sort of a continuation of the previous career. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I suppose starting on your medical career, going into emergency medicine, could you just tell me a little bit about sort of when and indeed why you went into medicine in the first place? That's a, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, from the time I was a little boy, um, I wanted to be a doctor. I, and there was something about it that uh, appealed to me. I was always kind of a bookworm, always curled up with a book. Other kids would be, you know, I was not physical at all when I was a kid growing up. And 
uh, I loved science. I loved nerdy stuff. And I used to watch doctor shows, and it's like, that's what I want to do. I didn't want to be a cop or a fire truck driver or an action hero. I just wanted to be a doctor, you know, like Chad Everett or Hawkeye Pierce or something like that. Marcus, Marcus Welby, like who knows? And who knows what was going on in my childlike mind that, you know, what I thought it would be like and everything. But, you know, I went through other phases, of course, but I always came back to being really interested in medicine. I got out of the Marine Corps and actually thought I was too old, but I met a, a guy uh, while I was training in Tong Soo Do, he said, no, you're not too old. Go, just go do it. And so I did. Got into med school. I actually never graduated from college. Got into med school out of college. I don't know how it works in the UK, but in the United States, you usually graduate from college before you go to medical school. Right. Um, so that worked. I went into med school with the idea that I would do surgery because obviously surgery is very badass and it's, you know, it's very aggressive and it's, you know, kind of action packed. And um, I was on my surgery clerkship in med school for about 24 hours before I realized I was not going to be a surgeon, that that life was not going to work for me. Quite frankly, surgeons are wonderfully dedicated and uh, smart and effective people, but they're not always the nicest people. Mm -hmm. So I, I realized that surgery was not going to work for me. And I started thinking family practice. Then I did a clerkship in emergency medicine at, at University of Arizona. And those guys get to do everything. And they're in control, theoretically in control of their time because it's shift work. And you have to know a little bit about everything. You don't know, you, like your knowledge is broad, but not necessarily deep, except in a few areas like resuscitation and trauma and cardiovascular emergencies, neurological emergencies. So I liked that. I liked being a generalist. I liked being in a field that was very procedurally intensive, where you got to do a lot of intensive care, a lot of critical care. And so I went for it. And you were in Detroit at the time. I mean, what was that like practicing? No, I was actually in Arizona. Well, I was in Arizona and I matched for Detroit, I see. which was my second choice. And my first choice was Arizona because if I did not rank Arizona first, my mom would disown me. <laughs> um, but I matched for Detroit. And um, in those days, I came out to Detroit in 1992 and it was a freaking war zone. It mm. was horrible. It was like a demilitarized zone. Uh, and a, so it was like learning emergency medicine, you know, in Aleppo, Syria or something like that. You know, it was like. Goodness. Learning emergency medicine in a war zone. So it was great for training. You know, you saw one of everything in the course of a few shifts. It was it was a pretty amazing place to train. And so you did that for 25 years. It seems like, is it fair to say that the genesis of your current career, well, your new career, I guess you could say, is the PhD that you, you undertook with brain ischemia related to stroke and MI? Yeah, that's exactly right. Of course, and you don't have to do research in, you know, in emergency medicine or you know this, you know, you see chronic degenerative diseases of aging and diseases of affluence all around you. But I did do a research fellowship after I graduated from residency. Um, it was a basic science research fellowship. So it was bench work. It was basic cell biology. Uh, it was rat science, basically. What we were interested in was, uh, how the brain, how selectively vulnerable areas in the brain die when the blood flow gets cut off, like in stroke or cardiac arrest, or how the brain dies in trauma. So we're interested in brain cell death. And um, that took me to a couple of issues. Uh, one of them was protein synthesis. And so I became very, very involved in that whole uh, cellular biology of protein synthesis, ribosomes and mRNA and message selection and eukaryotic initiation factors and ugh, right <laughs> stuff that rabbit hole your listeners yeah stuff that your listeners probably don't want to hear about and then also I got involved in the effect of growth factors on cell death and uh, one of the things that that actually really really started to to gain traction in that whole field while I was doing my fellowship and while I was a young investigator in that field was the idea that brain cells, when they were confronted by an ischemic insult, a transient ischemic insult where the blood flow stops for 8, 10, 15 minutes and then is restored, that brain cells don't just like splat and die. They off themselves. They like, you know, they hang out for like seven or 10 days, but they're so traumatized by the whole thing and they just 
they kill themselves. And so um, there was an increasing amount of information on how brain cells did that and also why they might not do that. And that was very interesting to us. And that led us to this whole area of growth factor signal transduction. And I was particularly interested in insulin and insulin-like growth factors, but I was interested in growth factor signaling in particular, a lot of which goes through what's called the AKT mTOR pathway, which even, you know, the most basic meathead in the gym has probably heard of at some point because it's closely linked to protein synthesis. Uh, but it's also closely linked to cell survival. And while surfing the literature one day, I came across this paper and I don't even remember what paper it was now, uh, but I came across a paper where they took what I called a, what I always call a bro bar blood study, where they took a bunch of bros and they drew their blood and then they had them squat and then they drew their blood again and they looked at some growth factors like before and after squatosis. And uh, what did they find? Well, these guys, they squirted a lot of growth factor into their serum. Ah. And since that time, I think we've come to understand that that may not be that important for muscle growth, but at the time it was a very compelling result. And while it may not be important for muscle growth, we now think muscle growth is, is initiated by growth factors, but in a, what's called a paracrine or autocrine fashion more than a systemic fashion. But the fact remains that you do spill a lot of growth factors after heavy strength training. And that was very, very interesting to me because I was looking at growth factors as survival factors in the setting of ischemia. I was also getting older because I started med school late. Plus, I was like, I had just finished residency and I was doing a fellowship. So I wasn't in exactly the best shape of my life. And I knew I wanted to get back into training. Long story short, I eventually got to Ripito's book. Starting Strength. This is Starting Strength. Yeah. Starting Strength. I found it extremely persuasive and I still do. And so I started that program. I kept a log on Ripito's form, you know, buried somewhere in the depths of his form. And somebody asked me someday, one day about um, my training and how I thought it connected to other stuff like my research and stuff. And so I wrote a short little blurb in my private training log about that. And that guy who shall remain nameless, except to say that his name is Bob Grant, uh, showed that to Ripito and Ripito got in touch with me and said, yeah, write this up. It's an article. It is a gruff voice, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so, and um, in lieu of payment, <laughs> why don't you just come on out to one of our seminars? And, and I said, okay. And I went out and met him. I'd been training for a while at that time and I was also coaching people because it was fun. And I had, I had already had experience coaching people in physical movement is a martial arts instructor and a Marine Corps sergeant and all this other stuff. So um, I did okay on the platform and I got my credential and, and I started getting clients and then like everything went sideways. My whole life just like was suddenly taking a different direction and here I am. So you were still practicing emergency medicine. You, you started strength training on the uh, merit of reading this uh, starting strength um, from Ripto. Well, I, I had always, I'd always done some, I'd always done some weightlifting, right? Of course, for most of my life, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, sure. right? Uh, but Ripto just, I mean, the guy was so systematic, so persuasive. Uh, reading that book as, as a biologist and a, phys and a physician, it just made so much sense. So yeah, so I'm, I'm practicing emergency medicine. I'm doing research. I get into strength training. Yeah. You eventually start to coach people is that kind of i mean how does that come come about you're still practicing and then so after i read starting strength and i started doing the program i'm not the most athletic person in the world but i'm not a complete muscle motor idiot either and so i did okay with the program and i and i i just started getting stronger than i'd ever been in my life like in my late 40s and you know, we had friends and family, who, you know, I coached them. And so I got some practice what it was like trying to show people. And I paid a lot of attention to the, the book contains a teaching method, if you look at it closely. And so, you know, I would just channel Ripito and, uh, and coach people. And, you know, some of those cues, I didn't know what I was actually cueing, but they but they worked, you know, and I got to understand the cues. This was it was a classic fake it till you make it kind of scenario. Oh, right. Okay. So like medicine, basically, just imposter syndrome the whole time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I can do this procedure. No worries. <laughs> right. Right. So <laughs> exactly. 
and it worked. And so by the time I went to to seminar uh, after he asked me to write that article, I, I actually was, a, you know, in a nascent sense, a pretty good coach. And the article itself, writing the article for Ripito, I didn't just like, you know, cut and paste my my little post that I'd made. I said, well, if he wants me to write an article, I'll write him a freaking article. So I did basically sort of a narrative literature review uh, in a sense and and kind of spruced it up a little bit. And, um, you know, that little article uh, kind of made a splash. splash. Yeah, a lot of people liked it and a lot of people read it. And what it did was it submerged me while I was writing it. In, you know, I knew how to I knew how to go into the literature. I know how to surf the literature. So I went into the literature looking at the stuff. It's like, my God, there's an entire world of research. And I'm a doctor and I don't know any of this stuff about exercise in general and strength training in particular on health and chronic degenerative diseases of aging. And finally, Julian, the other thing you have to realize is I'm in my late 40s. I'm working shifts in the ER as a clinical instructor, and I'm becoming increasingly disenchanted with what is going on. Within and medicine in general, or was it? Within, within medicine in general and American public health, people don't understand where, you know, you've got, you've got sepsis, we've got an app for that. You know, you've got appendicitis, mm. we can do something about that. You've got multiple trauma, you need to come see me. Um, you've got diabetes type two, right? You've got morbid obesity. You've got, you know, metabolic syndrome. We're not so great at that. Um, we're not so great at treating these chronic degenerative diseases, um, of aging, most of which are heavily lifestyle influenced. And I could see that we were just spinning our wheels. I mean, just really missing the point. And, and then there's the administration of American medicine itself, which is, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole, but it's not, not great. And I was, and, and I was getting older and emergency medicine is, you know, to a certain extent, a young man's game. Uh, I, you know, it's very physically demanding. So all of that was sort of a confluence of factors. And, uh, the next thing I knew, I had found like I'd rented a little closet in a warehouse, like this leaky old warehouse somewhere. And um, I had a gym that I was running two days a week. It was a tiny, tiny little gym, two platforms, two cheap squat racks, two cheap barbell sets. You know, it was basically, well, let's see what happens. And what happened was I filled up those two days and I filled up those two racks really, really fast. And it, it started to become, you know, not just sort of an avocation, but a real business. I expanded into a larger space and we filled that up. And now we're in our third space and we're full. Yeah. So that's what happened. It's quite a rogue direction to go off in. Did, did anyone look at you and think, what the heck are you doing? Or All of them. Yeah. I mean. All of them. <laughs> they were like completely mystified. Uh, my chair... Uh, Dr. Brian O'Neill, he's the chair of emergency medicine at Wayne State University. He is one of the most wicked smart people I've ever met and a really good guy. And, you know, my last few faculty reviews, he just looked at me like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like a dad looking at, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. You know, I just, he, and, and you got to remember, we, he wasn't just my chair. We had worked together in the lab. We co-authored papers together. So this goes back away he, then, yeah. It goes back away and he's yeah. like, what are, you, what are you doing, you know, kind of thing. And he tried to make it work. You know, I, I kept, I told him for like the last couple, yeah, you know, like, Brian, you really should fire me. I mean, let, you know, let's just do this because, you know, and he's like, no, no, uh, stay on and do this and stay on and do that. And it, it, you know, in the long run, the writing was on the wall. Um, I was having too much fun. Wheels were in motion by that point, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, what you're talking about in the emergency department, and you mentioned this in your book as well, that you were becoming increasingly disillusioned with these guys who were coming in, and they'd have, as you mentioned, type 2 diabetes, and a lot of the conditions that you eventually coin under the term the um, sick aging phenotype and all of the things there so you've you've managed to i don't know how long it took you to sort of tease apart all of these potentially preventable things and then attach the therapy of strength training to, as a modality that could that could ameliorate or even reverse any of these 
uh, that sort of process you because i think it was the book three years that it took to write or, or thereabouts yeah, yeah. yeah about yeah so you must have been just um absolutely balls deep in the literature for yeah i was so it, it was kind of like when i first went into brain ischemia research and i just like i just I, we keep using the word rabbit hole i went down the rabbit hole yeah and learned because uh, that was a fascinating area of research what happens when the most complex object in the universe gets sick right um, now I had this other area that I just sort of fell into and there was this whole world of research, much of it bad. Let's be clear, much of it, not very good research because exercise science, well, actually medical research in general is not that great. It's not like physics or cosmology, you know, where everything's replicable and mm. you, you know, it's, it, you're dealing with human flesh and populations and statistics. And so a lot of it is, and industry. So a lot of it is flawed, if not downright corrupted. But that being, that being said, there was a real obvious vector to the literature that I was reading. Okay. And I knew that what we were doing for people in the ER and in the clinic with these chronic degenerative disease, with the sick aging phenotype, fat, diabetic or pre-diabetic, weak, sarcopenic, osteopenic, uh, frail. There was no pill. There was no medicine. There was no procedure that you could throw at these people. Like the only thing that was going to help them was to take command of the way that they live, to take ownership of the way that they live, because the way we live is the most powerful medicine of all. And it can be a good medicine or it can be a, a bad medicine. The way we live, we have a word for a bad medicine. We call it a poison. So we can have lifestyle medicine or we can have lifestyle poison. And lifestyle poison is very prevalent. And we see the consequences in the ER and you see the consequences all day in clinic. As I dove into this literature, I began to realize, yeah, we really are missing the boat. I'm the guy you need if you've got appendicitis or if you've been in a car crash or if you've been shot in the chest. You need to come to me. A vegan diet will not help you with that. Strength, strength training will not help you with that. But in general, most of what we were seeing was stuff where like the only real medicine that you could give these people that wasn't a Band-Aid would be to say, you know, you need to get off your ass and you need to stop eating junk, right? You need to stop. You, you, need, to, you need to eat better. You need to uh, live better. You need to walk more. You need to lift heavy things. You know, you need to use the body that providence gave you or you're going to lose it. You are losing it. You may have lost it. It really churned my whole professional life on its head. So I think even as you've been speaking now, one of the things that I do believe has drawn quite a lot of people to your message and particularly why I've been following you and your channel and everything, especially now there's so much out there on the, you know, the bio uh, medical argument for exercise. And it can be put across oftentimes in quite a uh, stale way. And we all know sort of, oh, yeah, it's very good for you. And these are the things it does for your cardiovascular system. These are the things it does for uh, all the other aspects of your health. But what you bring into your sort of message is You've, you've talked about human, human apoptosis and this psychosocial component, which is arguably more powerful, perhaps, this idea of not giving in or throwing in the towel and, and this kind of philosophy as you're starting to get older, rather than just somebody saying, oh, you know what, you should do this because it reduces your chance of a heart attack by da 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 That's all the, the biological argument and really powerful. People don't care about that. What people care about is feeling good and feeling alive and being able to do things that they never thought that they would be able to do or never thought that they would be able to do again. You, you talk about human apoptosis. Apoptosis is a process of cell suicide that we studied in brain ischemia research. It's an extremely important biological phenomenon of how cells kill themselves. It's very important in, in embryonic development. It's very important as an anti-cancer strategy. Um, it's important in brain ischemia. I started to think of, I, I would look at these at, at my patients and I would say, you are undergoing human apoptosis. You're undergoing a spiritual and physical apoptosis. You've basically let go. You're letting yourself die slowly right in front of your friends and family um, because of the way you eat and because of your total lack of mobility. 
You know, Ripito starts his book, Starting Strength, with the phrase, um, physical strength is the most important thing in life, or words to that effect. Mm. And, and he's drawn some fire for that. No, no, you know, spirituality and family and love and all this stuff is the, you know, and I'm not trying to dismiss any of that stuff. We are human beings and we're capable of an extremely elaborate and emotional and deep and sublime kind of being. But all of that is for naught if you can't get off the toilet, right? All of that is for naught if you're in pain and you're suffering and you're morbidly obese and you need a go-kart to get from here to there. And, you know, and all of it is cut unnecessarily short if you are immersed in lifestyle poison instead of lifestyle medicine. So we begin as physical beings. That's the foundation. And when that foundation is strong, then so many other things become possible and horizons become so much broader. Even for people in their sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth decade of life, they, they start to do this. They start to, to lift heavy things. They start to increase their endurance and their strength and, um, their mobility and their durability. All of a sudden their lives start to expand again instead of contract. It's, it's a growth factor. It's a macroscopic growth factor that reverses a human apoptosis. That's what it is. It says, no, don't involute, grow. It says, no, don't die, survive. It says, you know, no, don't shrink your horizons, expand your horizons, get out there and live because you've got the strength and the, and the stamina to do it now. And you've got an attitude because when you train for strength, when you, when you engage in training, progressive overload, you lift a little bit more today than you did last time, right? And you have the courage to get under that heavy bar or to pick that heavy bar up off the floor. It looks daunting, but you like step up to it and you do it anyway. And, and then you have that, that sense of triumph when it's over. That just changes people. That changes people. It is, it is the antidote for the sick aging phenotype. Fantastic. Powerful. Yeah. And so I'm going to be obviously linking your book because I think there's just so much that Thank we you. can't cover, which is uh, it's just all in there. And this, I guess, segues nicely into what you're doing now. You have your own strength and conditioning facility. You're focused on barbell training, strength training, resistance training, and it's mainly geared, although I've heard you say not exclusively, to sort of older adults, older athletes, 40 years and above, typically speaking. Mm. Could you give us a bit of a an insight into some of maybe the examples of the, this kind of reversal of human apoptosis that you've, you've just so eloquently described of maybe some of your clients? Sure. Um, one of my very first clients ever when I was still working out of my garage uh, was a gentleman in his late 60s. He uh, was very involved with this church and his religious community, and uh, in his system of devotion, they do a, a kind of prostration, I suppose, and he couldn't get up off the floor. He he was a friend of Carl Schutt, uh, who has a strength, uh, a very respected coach and a very wonderful man, very strong man, part of a poet and a philosopher, and he told Carson, go see, this, go see Sully and do whatever he tells you. So he came to me and we got him strong and within the first year of training he was like well i'm i'm going to he went to a meet he went to a meet and competed <laughs> the deadlift and uh, he, which he by the way did behind my back that's outrageous um, yeah <laughs> uh, he told me at the last minute i'm going to this meet and i'm like okay well i'll come up there and coach you but you shouldn't have done that and um so he went up there and he did great and then his wife came on board his wife basically could not stand up out of a chair unassisted and had osteoporosis and did not look well. They are both still with us. She doesn't have osteoporosis anymore. She deadlifts in the range of 150. She, you know, her squat, she, we're thinking about getting her to a 100 pound squat. She's in the mid eighties right now with her squat started out extremely fit, frail and osteoporotic. And, and I know for a fact that, uh, she loves the training, but fun fact, no, she does not love the training. Like, like she does not, she does not love it. Right. But she comes in and she very dutifully and courageously attacks the bar and she gets stronger and stronger. They are still with us. They're a very important part of our, of our gym community. We have 
my friend Val, who was basically a skeleton when she came to me, he's like, like, okay, well, the first thing you need to do, there's this thing called eating, and you can do some of that, and then we can we can strength train you, and we can put some muscle on your frame. She is incredibly strong now. She's uh, in her late 60s, I think maybe 70, deadlifting 175, 180 pounds, squatting, uh, you know, 120 pounds. These are remarkable weights for people in their age range, people who've never been athletic. I suppose, yeah, they're untrained as well in the main. Yeah, exactly. And we have our 92-year-old, John. We did a, a profile video on him a few years ago. It's kind of interesting. At the time we did the profile video on him, he'd been with us for some months uh, we had video of him there doing a a 147 pound deadlift. He's like, yeah, I'd like to get, you know, I'd like to get to 180 or something like that. <laughs> I'd like to get. He squats 170 now. Oh goodness! And he's going to open uh, with the 250 pound deadlift at the uh, USSF Regional Strengthlifting Meet in Chicago. Bloody hell! That's outrageous. Yeah, he's 92 years old. He's 92 uh, and he's doing that. 90, 92 years old. Yeah. What else are you giving this guy? Like that? <laughs> With him, you know, he's 92 years old. He doesn't always have the best appetite. So getting him to hang on to his weight um, is a little bit of a challenge. And so he has to eat like it's his job. I, I like send it's like, go to Steak and Shake. Go to Dairy Queen. It's like, well, you know, and he'll be like, well, what about the fat and the cholesterol? It's like, it hasn't got you so far. It's not going to get you. Like, just go eat. If it sounds good, if it looks good, eat it. Like, steal food from babies. I don't care. Um, but he is, you know, he is an incredible warrior. And it's kind of interesting. The older they are, the more diligently and the more the more aggressively that they train, they're they're like simply the best clients and the best athletes. They are, they are all in because for them, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an existential opponent that they, you know, that they're uh, competing with stories like that all over the place. We have um, a couple of patients with Parkinson's who train with us and have gotten quite a bit stronger a gentleman with uh, cerebellar ataxia who trains with us. It's been a real joy to watch him slowly, painfully get more and more control over his movement patterns and get stronger at the same time. And um, a lot of fun to have in the gym. 68-year-old lady who weighs about 105 pounds soaking wet, and she can squat 140 pounds on a good day. She deadlifts over 200. You've got these guys' numbers just right up there in your head. You must be working with them a All lot. the time, yeah. Uh, so, so our practice, increasingly, I just think of it as a clinic. You know, it's semi-private. There's time slots, three racks, three athletes per time slot. They come in, and uh, when when somebody's lifting, everyone else is watching, right? So if you're if you, you know if you're at Gray Steel and you're lifting some of the inner some of the advanced intermediates, I'll let them warm up on their own. But any heavy warm ups or work sets, uh, if you're lifting, my eyes are on you. Nobody else is lifting. We're all watching, and that's how that's how that works. Is that because they are more prone to injury, or they're an older population, so? Um, you know, so you can't let them get away with form errors, you know, that you might let, uh, you know, that you might let a bro get away with. Hopefully you wouldn't. But uh, the other thing is, is that they're paying me a fair amount of money. Yeah, they deserve, they deserve my eyes on them. My eyes are one of my uh, coaching associates. We've actually had to expand our operations a little bit. I have uh, coaching interns that are developing, you know, their own practice within uh, Graysteel. It's exciting, but yeah, our philosophy is, you know, if you're here, you're here because this is serious stuff. This is not cosmetic. This is not for fun. This is medicine. So we're going to have eyes on you. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned it's it's medicine, and I've seen you writing a fair bit about the perhaps the similarities between barbell training and actually specifically why you've chosen that as your interventional modality versus other forms of exercise would it be okay to just explain a wee bit about you know why is that like as you mentioned a medicine in what way sure um the idea that exercise is a form of medicine is actually 
kind of an old one. It goes back to, you know, Galen and Hippocrates. But with modern medicine, which is a very disease-oriented, disease-centered approach, uh, that kind of fell by the wayside. Now we're getting back to a more patient-centered approach. And the idea that exercise is a form of medicine has more traction than ever. So my contention is, well, if exercise is a medicine, then you can't just tell patients, like, just go get some exercise. You know, that's like saying, well, go take some antibiotics or go take some medicine, right? Well, no, that you can't do that, right? If exercise is a medicine, then we should prescribe it as a medicine. It should have uh, a therapeutic window. It should have a dosage range. When we prescribe it, we should prescribe the modality, the dose, the frequency, the therapeutic targets. That's what we should do as physicians when we prescribe medicine, which means that we have to know what we're doing. So I wrote this book partly for people like you and other physicians. Uh, any form of exercise medicine is better than no exercise medicine with a few caveats. I mean, like, you know, you're not going to tell a 70-year-old lady with type 2 diabetes, well, I think Muay Thai, you know, cage fighting is, is you know, that will, that will get your heart rate pounding. Well, yeah, it will, but it will also get her killed. So you need something that's safe, right? First and foremost, it has to be safe. You can't hurt these people. So safety is the first criterion, like it is for any other medicine, right? And then there has to be a consideration of the therapeutic index. You and I both know that we would much rather use a drug with a wide therapeutic window than a drug with a narrow therapeutic window. Drugs with narrow therapeutic windows, sometimes they're necessary, but they're you know extremely treacherous. And so we want a drug with a wide therapeutic window, which is the basically the gaposis between you know the minimal effective dose and you know and the minimum toxic dose we want to have a large window there to work with which also means that the drug is going to be very titratable the medicine is going to be very titratable we want a wide range of doses and we want uh something that's going to be as comprehensive as possible that's going to cover as many therapeutic targets as it can that's going to be uh, effective right it actually has to have a therapeutic effect and we'd like it to be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So those are the five criteria for a good exercise medicine. And when you look at the available exercise medicines, they all perform to some degree or another. So, for example, Tai Chi, martial arts. I'm going to do a series uh, of articles on martial arts pretty soon. I think some martial arts actually are pretty good for athletes of aging. Not, not, for, not from a self-defense perspective, but things like Tai Chi and certain martial arts um, they check some of those boxes, right? But not all of them. But when you look at what checks all the boxes, strength training checks all the boxes, right? It's incredibly safe because it's just normal human movement patterns expressed under a load, done the same way every time, on a stable surface, indoors, extremely, extremely safe. Um, it has an extremely wide therapeutic window. You can start people out with like a broomstick and work your way up to a 150-pound, 200-pound press or squat. So it's got a wide therapeutic window. It's got a wide dosing range. It's extremely titratable. And that's just the load. You can also like mess around with reps and sets and frequency and all that. So it, exquisitely titratable in a way that most exercise medicines are not. It's very comprehensive. It fits. It hits all of these fitness attributes, strength, power, mobility, balance, body composition. And yes, it hits endurance too, right? So people tell you that, you know, if you've trained for strength, you're not going to have any endurance while well, they're full of it. They don't know what they're talking about. Although we do like to include a high-intensity conditioning modality as well, and we do that at Graysteel. And it's effective. There's just a mountain of evidence out there for strength training, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obviously sarcopenia and osteopenia, uh, metabolic syndrome, visceral fat. So all of these things, all of these, the sick aging phenotype response to strength training. And finally, it's, it's just as simple and efficient as it can be. I mean, you're four exercises, two days a week. That's what I ask from my clients at Grace Deal. Four, 90 minutes, twice a week, four exercises and a conditioning component. That's the prescription. That's the whole prescription right there. It is simplicity itself. And that prescription is incredibly individualizable, right, to the patient in front of you, to the client in front of you. And the longer they train, the more individualized their prescription becomes. It sort of shrink wraps to them over time. So everyone starts out with a linear progression. And, you know, eventually, you know, I've got people doing heavy light programming. I've got people doing heavy light medium block, four day split, 
Texas. You know, it, it depends on them. How long do you run the sort of novice LP for? Do you find on your clients? It, it, it just depends. It depends. It depends on the person in front of you. So that's the other great thing. I mean, as a doctor, y- you know that a lot of medicine, so-called evidence-based medicine, is just algorithmic. Like, give this much drug. If that doesn't work, give that much drug. See what happens. See what happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hope for the best. Yeah. Um, strength training, you know, is is almost infinitely adaptable uh, to the person in front of you. I can get I can get anybody to do those four movement patterns: squat, press, press or curl, bench, and deadlift. I can get them to do some variation of that, and it works every single time. It's incredibly effective. As you said, however, it is a self-administered medicine, and I guess that's the tricky thing because it's it's so potent. And your book pr- uh, provides just such a whopping smack in the face for the efficacy of it. And also, I've noticed you, Jordan Feigenbaum, Austin Baraki, your monster of an article on UpToDate is another just – you can just go on and on about the benefits. It's unreal. So – you may have already answered this, but with your clients, uh, you mentioned one of them is sort of is coming along, even though perhaps she doesn't enjoy it so much. Do you find that the underlying drive, the motivation for these guys is predominantly, would it be fear-based or, uh, I mean, what's the things that, A, make these guys join you and then B, sustain them in the longer term? I would say for the most part, when they come to us, when they first come to us, there's some fear just like it was for me. I realized I was losing muscle mass. I realized I wasn't getting stronger. I'm not getting younger. Um, Somebody like the first client I told you about, who like realized he couldn't get up off the floor and his wife couldn't stand up out of a chair. And yeah, I think it starts there with the sense that I have to do something because things are definitely moving in the right direction. I have to, I have to do something and medicine isn't helping me. It's just a bandaid. So it starts there. Every now and then somebody comes in and they, you know, somebody who's a master athlete or somebody over 40 or over 50 and they're like, hey, I'm already active. I'm a cyclist. I just spoke to an, a very nice gentleman the other day who's going to probably join us as a new member. And uh, he travels a lot, so it's difficult. But he's a cyclist, extremely active, vigorous, healthy, well-preserved gentleman. He's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm in shape. I'm like, I'm, I'm good, except like I, I'm getting skinny. I, I can't hang on to any of my muscle. I'm like, yeah, that's funny how that works because you're not checking all the boxes for some, but there's a few people who will come in like that. I want to optimize. I'm already healthy. I'm already active. I'm already vigorous, but I want to, I want to optimize. I want to, I want to kick it up to the next level. But for most people, it's about health and, and they're a little scared. Yeah. After the novice progression, they stick, you know, people tend to stick with us. Uh, one of the reasons we're so busy is that we don't have a lot of churn. People just don't leave. <laughs> they don't leave. They just stay with us. After a while, it's, it's not about fear anymore. It's about, it's almost about joie de vivre as much as anything else. You know, they're like, this, this stuff works for me. This stuff is fun. It's hard. It's brutally hard work, but I love it. And, we're very fortunate in Grace. So we have this, we have this real sort of community ethos. We have this real sense of community there. So these people, uh, they're off behind my back doing stuff all the time. They form little networks and conspiracies and stuff like that in the gym, you know, and I'll, I'll come back after a trip to Wichita Falls or, or to go talk somewhere. I'll come back after a, a, you know, a week or so. And they've been up to all kinds of crazy stuff. So they, they also have a social network now uh, that they're doing. So yes, it starts out as fear. It starts out as health. Sometimes it starts out for performance. It almost never starts out with aesthetics. By the time people, you know, the kind of people who come to me um, are smart enough and old enough and affluent enough, they know they're not going to end up looking like Brad Pitt, right? But then it ends up being something else. It ends up being so much more because and this is a point that I, that I think really needs to be made because we're training, right? It's a it's 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 not just exercise medicine where you go and you thrash about twice a week. It's it's more than that. It's training, and training is the manipulation of training variables over time to optimize fitness and performance. And when you train, you have to think about recovery. 
right? You're, you, you, when you're leading the lifestyle of an athlete, which is what this is about, right? An athletic lifestyle. Well, then everything comes into play because recovery is the linchpin of all of our programming. Recovery, you had, you, Ripito said a long time ago, you don't get stronger by lifting weights, you get stronger by recovering from lifting weights. What does recovery bring in? Well, it brings in nutrition, hydration, active rest, sleep, stress reduction. Everything comes into play, right? So it's not just barbell training is big medicine, but this whole way of life is big medicine because you want to get a bigger deadlift. So you have to eat better. You have to sleep better. You can't, you can't stress out about stupid shit all the time anymore. You have to be, you have to be all in. The whole lifestyle comes along for the ride. And so it, it really is life-changing. It's not like you keep living the way you were living and then you go lift weights twice a week. Everything changes. It, it, it's this powerful medicine. You know, it's kind of like you have dialysis. You got to go in for dialysis twice a week. Well, you have to like change your whole life around that. But that sucks. That sucks, right? Or chemo or something. That sucks, right? This is a medicine where you arrange your life around it in a way that is just wonderful, right? And the better you get, the bigger the doses that you need. That's right. It's unlike any other medicine. The, the, the more healthy you get, the bigger dose you can absorb of the medicine uh, and the better it will be for you. One thing I also wanted to ask, I was speaking to a couple of physicians, well, a surgeon and um, a physician, Dr. Rhonda Rockett and Dr. Sean Rockett. Mm -hmm. I saw that. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Rhonda used to be in primary care. She did that for about 12 years. And then she had a similar kind of itchy feet thing that I imagine you had as well. She she left primary care to go and coach full-time CrossFit because she thought she could just have a bigger impact. And one of the questions I asked her was, is there anything that you could say to your colleagues in either maybe emergency care is a bit too acute, but any other, just medicine in general, I guess, that having gone to where you are now, you could feed back to the medical community and be like, if you just considered this or spoke about this or did this with your patients, it might go some way towards this sort of lifestyle change. Yeah. Um, we're really, really good at throwing medicines at a problem. And don't get me wrong, our patients need some of these medicines. They need these these crutches and these band-aids and sometimes for life. But if you are not prescribing lifestyle medicine to your patients, you are doing them a disservice and you're not being true to the noble calling of your profession. You're not doing everything for your patients if you're not prescribing medicine and by prescri prescribing exercise medicine. And by prescribing, I don't mean telling them to go and get some exercise. Um, you need to educate your, yourself about exercise medicine, its benefits, its properties, its proper administration and prescription, just like you would learn about a new pharmaceutical agent or a new procedure. You need to edu educate yourself about it. Maybe you'll use my book. There are other resources as well. And you need to be prescribing exercise for all of your patients who aren't already doing it, and for your patients who are doing it, you need to be interested in what they're doing. What is your exercise program? And the same thing with nutrition. You need to be looking at your patients through the lens, not just of their disease or their biomarkers, but you need to say, oh, okay, well, you're a runner. So what is your diet like, right? Or, oh, you're engaged in strength training. Uh, what is your diet like? You need you need to look at the whole patient in front of you. And then I'll just tell you one more thing. There's a short video on our channel about a, a gentleman named Ivan Nanchev, who was, um, he's a doctor from Bavaria. He got in touch with me. He's like, I read your book. This is, this is really cool. I think this changes everything. I'm coming to Detroit. I'll be there in a week. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. He was like, he, and the guy got on a plane and he flew out to Grayseal and he spent a day or two with us in the gym and he talked to my clients and it was like he was it, for as far as he was concerned it was continuing medical education he's like he like I want to find out all about this and he was like he was doing the program he was training himself and his son had coached him his son was familiar with uh starting strength method and he was like this is amazing so he came out next thing i knew he was here so we had a, a very wonderful time with him 
a very nice man. We filmed a, an interview with him. He went and saw Ripito at Wichita Falls while he was here in the U.S., and uh, they filmed an interview with him as well. And then here's the kicker. This is what I want. This was my dream come true. This guy, Dr. Nanshev, flies back to Bavaria and converts an annex of his clinic into a strength training facility. Oh, dream ticket. Added a strength training facility to his clinic. Man. That's what I want. That's what I I've heard of this sort of thing. I think, is it Jordan Feigenbaum who's got a strength training facility within his primary care clinic or with the work that you're doing and it sounds like it's gaining traction, hopefully that will start to, to manifest a bit over here as well. But have you had any, on the other side, on the flip side, have you had any negative pushback or anything from the medical community about what you're doing? No, you're- not from the medical community at all. At a professional level, I think we're really moving, I think we're really moving the needle. I would, I would like to think that, you know, that my work has had a little something to do with that. But there is, you know, this accumulating mountain of data, which is just, it's astonishing that physicians don't know about it. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do is like, Put it in their face and say, "Hey, you've got the you you know it's not just exercise. Exercise is a medicine, and you can you can prescribe it like any other medicine and fit it to the patient in front of you and make them better and make them live better. And that's what doctors are supposed to do. And so why why do we have this form of medicine that we're not using? And you know you know even doctors can like say, oh yeah, and and, and get that. We can really be a very we can really be very conservative doctors. We can be very conservative. And a lot of doctors are what we call slow adopters, right? Uh, they, don't, they don't embrace new ways of thinking and new approaches uh, quickly. Sometimes we don't do it quickly enough. Uh, and sometimes we do it too quickly. But, uh, you know, some young doctors like, hey, let's give that a go. Um, so I guess, you know, the, young, the younger doctors are the ones that hopefully will bring this to the fore. It is extremely powerful. It is extremely essential. And so, yes, I would say if you're not if you're not doing this, if you're not thinking about exercise as a medicine and using it aggressively in your client population, then you're missing the boat and you, you're doing your patients and your profession a disservice. One of the reasons why you are striking a chord is because you've set an example by stepping out of the sort of echelons of academia and doing something extremely tangible and practical. And on the basis of your YouTube channel and everything you've been putting out, I I, I did a, a very small sort of intra-departmental teaching session on resistance training for the older adult in my care of the elderly ward. I, I tried to articulate my thoughts through reading your book and a few other things through writing a couple of articles. And then the reason I started this podcast was on the back of seeing everything that you've done as well. And I just thought this is a good way to try and just explore this arena. Whereas beforehand, there was nothing to really hang any ideas on. It was just sort yeah, of... Yeah, nothing to grab onto, yeah. Yeah, there's no... It's just literature just scattered around and I didn't really... But you've, you, you've, you've done that very unique thing of synthesizing it and presenting it. And you, I know people have complimented you on your ability to present a huge swathes of data in a way that people can understand, but also in a way that uh, people within the medical community find robust and, um, you know, evidence-based. So I think you deserve a lot of credit for that. And this was also a very good chance for me to just be able to have a chat with you. So that's sort of half the reason I started a podcast, to be honest. So <laughs> it's paid off at least. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, Julian. Thank you. And, and uh, if it got something like your podcast started and got something like what you're describing going on over there on the other side of the pond, then I, you know, I'm very gratified. I'm very gratified. So I hope you keep it up. So I'm aware of, you know, uh, your time and things. I wondered if I could just fire off a few quick, quick fire sort of questions to you, if that's okay. The first one, I'm just interested in what, what's your, what's your day look like these days? What do you, what do you do? Mondays and Fridays, I get up, I'm in the gym at 8 a.m. Sessions are 90 minutes long, three, you know, two or three people come in per session. You know, we just, we turn on the radio and we listen to music and we, you know, I, I go in, I look at the logs I have uh, for my um, intermediate clients. I have spreadsheets, prescription tables, if you will. Yeah. And they come in, they get a lifting assignment, which for the novices includes their warm-ups. 
and then we go to the platform and uh, and we start training and basically walk up and down coach one lifter at a time um, on Fridays uh, one of my assistant coaches comes in and he assists me we usually get a little bit a little break around two o'clock he and I often lift together and then the afternoon crew comes in gold team usually ends with what we call the jumpy bumpy crew which is a uh, fantastic name there's um, two two very sweet ladies late 50s and late 60s and they come in and they are actually some of my a couple of my strongest athletes that there's a gentleman who also comes in he's our gentleman with cerebellar ataxia and uh, he's an honorary jumpy bumpy girl we call him <laughs> and that is a crazy crazy group of people and they always put a smile on my face they all do but that 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 group is out of their mind wednesday and sunday works out you know much the same and then on days off, I work on Graysteel Channel and blog and articles and yeah. And I used to work a lot on science committee. I was the chair of the science committee for the Science Training Coaches Association. I, I resigned from the chair of that committee this year and I have new projects uh, underway. I'm almost as busy as I ever was as an emergency physician. The great thing is, is I'm not up at two o'clock in the morning running vomit. <laughs> it's a kind of uh, roundabout way to get out of that particular rotor but y- you've done it in the end at least yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but um i'm busy yeah sounds it absolutely what is the title of your favorite science fiction story that you have published and where can i find it my favorite one that i published that's a tough one the one that's done the best is um is called niels Bohr and the sleeping dane and okay. it's been published in several different places. And a sort of sci-fi related question, I guess. If I could offer you the chance to be – you get to wear a spacesuit for this, so there's a degree of safety involved. But if you could be teleported to anywhere in the universe just completely randomly for six seconds. So it's not – I don't think you'll die immediately, but would you, would you go for that? Yeah, I'd go for that. Sagittarius star at the middle of the galaxy. I could try and get you there. Okay. Supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. I'd like to see that. We'll just slingshot you over there. All right, That's right. Cool. But, but don't <laughs> let me get too close. Yeah. <laughs> have you got any books, it doesn't have to be strength or training related, that you would recommend, uh, one that you've got value out of? I have been telling people for a while now that I think everybody should have a copy of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius on their nightstand. I've been trying to get through that. It's quite a read actually. It takes a few Passovers I find. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll keep giving for the rest of your life and you can pick it up and you can open it up to almost any page at random because it's mostly aphorisms, right? There's a lot there. It is a book of so much wisdom and compassion and humanity and when you realize that the guy who wrote it was the emperor of rome how does that happen yeah it's an amazing little book everyone should have a copy you've heard it here first then and when will you be coming to the uk do you have any plans to come to europe even i'll spread it as far as that uh i would love to come to the uk i've only ever been there once and that was uh scotland yeah, I drove up and down the Argyle coast. Was that a bit uh, of a whiskey tour? Uh, it became one, but that's a long yeah. story. And uh, <laughs> that's a, a long story. Yeah, we'll see if we can work something out. And then I'll, I'll whip on over to Bavaria to see uh, see Ivan. Just stopping by. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Okay, great. So I'm just going to say, anyone who's listening to this, if you have any just a peripheral interest in strength training, if you're involved in caring for people who are uh, older, you must check out Dr. Sullivan's book, The Barbell Prescription. Also, check out his YouTube channel, Graysteel Strength, website Graysteel Strength. And I'll hand over to you. Is there anything else that you would like to plug right now or anything that you've got coming up that you'd like to let us know about? Well, we, we, uh, we do have the Barbell Prescription Clinic, which is a, um, it's a clinic, uh, a three-day clinic designed for people over 50 if they want to come. And uh, it's a very intensive experience where we get people... Um, we get people ready to start their life as an athlete of aging. Uh, the most current one is sold out, but if you watch for it, there'll be there'll be others coming. Um, but I appreciate you uh, mentioning the book and the Graysteel channel and the blog. There's a lot of information out there. Um, but the most important thing I would say is just get up and start moving. 
Um, you don't have to commit to this or that form of exercise medicine right now. Um, but any movement is better than no movement. Movement is medicine. You have a body. Use it. As soon as you do, you'll start to feel better right away. So just get active. It's the single best thing you can do for yourself. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Sullivan, for giving us your time. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks again.